Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, so I think at this time, Mrs. Fuller has a kids K through 5. I don't see any nursery happening today, but I could be wrong. But if your K through 5 go out the door to your right, my left, and uh, you know the routine. And that means the rest of you need to be turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, we're going to... Th- we're going to talk about the second coming today. Woohoo! The return of Christ. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're going to set dates and everything. So. <laughs> so we. Uh, when Jesus came the first time, there was a lot of things written about it. I mean, we knew about the. The events that would surround, we knew that it were, where he was going to be born, we knew um, some of the, the miraculous uh, uh, things that would, would accompany his, his birth, his coming into the world. And so we actually know quite a bit about it. There was a, a lot written about the first coming of Christ. There's actually quite a bit written about his second coming as well. And uh, in fact, a lot of what we know about his second coming comes from Jesus himself. And that's where we're, going to, where we're at today, is we are in Luke chapter 21. We, we call this the Olivet Discourse because he spoke it on the, on the Mount of Olives. Um, and so it has to do with a number of future of events. But one of the primary things in the Olivet Discourse is the return of Christ. And so today, that's what we're really going to be focusing on, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so in many ways, this is answering the the whole Olivet Discourse began with um, the the disciples noting the beauty of the temple. And they said, oh, look how beautiful this temple is. And Jesus says, basically, it's going to be reduced to a pile of rubble. And of course, then the disciples respond with some very logical questions. Really, when's that going to happen? And what would be the signs that would precede that so we can know. So really, this beautiful temple structure, it is really the center of our religious life is going to be reduced to a pile of rubble. We would like to know what are some of the events that will happen that will precede it and and when is that going to happen? We want to know. So Jesus begins to um, address 
those questions. And now he's moved on and is going to talk specifically about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, here's just a quick outline of where I I hope to go today. And that is um, we want to talk about some of the cosmic signs that will um, accompany the return of Christ. Then Jesus tells a very simple parable about um, about his return. While the parable is simple, there is one statement in there that will uh, cause that will challenge us a bit. And then he will conclude with an admonition. So that's the basic outline. It's important that we talk about the second coming of, of Christ. I, there are a number of reasons why the church needs this doctrine. First of all, um, we hold here as a non-negotiable as a, I think, a priority of the Christian faith in the, second, in the bodily return of Jesus Christ. Beyond that, we probably are going to have some discussion. But that we will affirm that Jesus Christ will come again um, in person. It is not a spiritual thing. It's not a mystical thing. It is a flat out Jesus Christ returns in the same way he left. And so we're going to see that. And so understanding these, so number one, it's, it's an important doctrine because it is an essential to the Christian faith. Another reason we, we need to understand it because it's, as we teach about the second coming of Christ, I hope to counter um, perhaps waning attentiveness because we get so wrapped up in life and in the in things that are going on. And let's just face it, probably everybody in here, if I was going to say, how many of you believe that the Lord is going to return? You would, most of us would probably raise our hands. If I were going to say, how many really, really believe that it's going to be in your lifetime? Or how many, how many believe it's going to be like this week? You may hope it's this week, but do you really, really believe? See, life goes on. It's been a couple thousand years. Life goes on. And so, and so we want to make sure that we remain attentive, we remain alert. It also is good to, uh, to talk about the second coming to temper fanaticism because, let's face it, very few teachings in the Bible have um, promoted and come up with um, more fanciful ideas than the second coming of Christ. So we want to learn about it so that we will maintain our fervor in anticipation, but also to make sure we don't go off the rails into weirdness. So that's another reason. I I also want us to to create a hunger, to to remind ourselves of the hunger of the parousia. Um, That's just a fancy word for the second coming. I was hoping Arvid would be here today, and so he's not. But if he listens to the recording, that word's for him. uh, Well, it's for you too, but anyways... Um, so that's, that's where we, we want to go uh, to, to really encourage attentiveness. I remember, um, I've, I've told this story a few times, but, uh, we were, Simone and I were going into to Walmart one day and the back of a pickup truck was a dog and he was, he had his gaze fixed on the front doors of Walmart. I mean, he was just staring. And when we walked by and Simone's kind of like, Hey doggy. And like one eye looked our way and it was not his master. And it was back to that front door. Simone says, I think that's the way we need to be with the Lord. And I'm going, man, what a, I'm going to steal that illustration, Simone. And uh, she said, well, you can, you can steal it, but just make sure you credit your source. So, 
that's the way we need to. We need to be like the dog looking at the door in Walmart. We get distracted. Oh, that's not the master. Back to looking. So that's where we want to go today. So let's go ahead. Follow along with me as we read our text. We'll be in Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 38. This is God's inerrant word. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and of the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look, At the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This concludes the reading of God's holy and enduring word. These words will not pass away. So Jesus is speaking. This is his, uh, one of his, the many sermons that he preached. And now Jesus turns his focus towards the end. I mean, the end, the end. Previous to this, he's been talking about, I believe, the destruction of Jerusalem. But now he's talking about his return. And there are some signs then that are going, he he says, to think about and to consider. And he says, and there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on earth, the stress of nations because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. And so what we have is we have um, uh, signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, all these things. This is very Old Testament imagery of the day of the Lord. If you go back and you look at the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, this is the kind of language you're going to find. You're going to find things like the sun ceasing to shine, the moon turning to blood, stars falling from the heaven, the earth convulsing, seas roaring. This is what occurs. This is how creation reacts to the unveiling of God Almighty. When earth experiences God in his glory, it convulses and does everything. In many ways, I think, I think, like Isaiah, sees the glory of the Lord and he, and he falls down and he says, Woe is me, I'm a dead man because I've seen the Lord. This is earth. This is creation. Basically saying, oh, that's the Lord of glory. Who are we to gaze upon him? Look at this in Joel. Here's a good example. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. This is very, we can call the stock day of the Lord imagery. And when I say that, I don't mean to diminish it. I just say it's very, very common when the Bible 
um, talks about the day of the Lord. This is the type of imagery we get. So it's not surprising then that Jesus picks it up. When I show up, this is the kind. This is the type, type of stuff that's going to happen. Earth convulses. Stars stop shining. Sun flees away. The sky is rolled up like a scroll. Cataclysmic events accompany God's intervening into the realm of mankind. It is as well comprehensive. You will notice that it is heaven, earth, and sea. Stars in the heavens, sun and moon, the earth convulses, the seas roar. Creation reacts to the coming of Jesus Christ. We see a little bit of this even at his birth, don't we? We see stars pointing direction. We see the heavens open and angelic beings. We see a little bit of um, earth reacting to the birth of Jesus Christ. But when he comes unveiled in his glory, when he came the first time, he was veiled. But when he comes unveiled, in fact, it's such a dramatic thing. Um, The Bible says that when we see him, we will be like him. So he is coming completely unveiled unveiled in in beauty and splendor to the point that when we see him, we'll be like him. Stars are now falling from the sky. Earth is convulsing. Seas are roaring. Um, They are responding to the coming of Jesus Christ. This is a great picture, don't you think? I want to point out one of the things that really stood out to me are the contrasting responses between believers and unbelievers to this event. Believers, look, look at how they're described here. I think this is interesting, at least it is to me, so... I'll point it out. Distress of nations, perplexity, fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the the world. Look at the way the earth, the unbelievers, um, respond to the return of Christ. Distress, perplexity, fainting, fearful expectation for what is coming upon the world. God is unveiled. Creation reacts. Creation is undone. And mankind is utterly and completely powerless. They don't know what to do. It is distressing. It is perplexing. It is fearful. And there are a lot of reasons why. But just think of all these things happening. And mankind realizes its utter powerlessness to do anything. If you've ever been in a natural disaster... Earthquake. Anybody been in an earthquake? Hurricane? Yeah. Tornado? Yeah. Tornadoes scare me. There's nothing you can do. Absolutely. When the earth starts shaking, I don't care how much money you have, how much education you have, I don't care how many connections you have, you can be the most politically connected or the most materially or the most po- you can be connected to the most powerful people in the world. And when the earth starts moving, none of those connections will do you one ounce of good. They won't change your situation. You've been on the ocean, the waves start rising up. There is nothing you can do. And these things begin to happen. And mankind is powerless. There is no diplomatic resolution. There isn't a military uh, uh, intervention that will help. 
all of their wealth, all of their intelligence will not have a single benefit on the day of the Lord. No wonder they're fearful. Everything they've relied on, everything they've counted upon, everything that is important, everything that gives foundation to their lives is worthless. And you'll note what causes their reaction, what causes their fear, what causes their perplexity, what causes their fearful expectation is the Son of Man. And then they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with great power and glory. Now, if you've been in this church long, you've probably heard this numerous times. But I think it bears repeating. And if you haven't been in this church long, you'll probably good to hear. This Son of Man reference comes straight out of Daniel chapter 7, where authority, one like a son of man comes up to the ancient of days and he is given authority and he is given authority over all of the kingdoms of the earth and everything is subjected to the son of man. So when Jesus uses that title, son of man, you need to understand he is pulling that reference out of Daniel chapter 7. I am the one who has the kingdom, who has power, who has authority. All kingdoms of the earth belong to me and everybody falls down and is obedient and worships the Son of Man. Earth dwellers see the Son of Man in power and in glory and in majesty. And you see him riding on a cloud, is what he says. Again, this is a divine image. Make no mistake, um, this is what God does. God rides on clouds. And God is known as a a warrior who rides on the clouds. And specifically, um, Isaiah 19.1 says, An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord... That's Yahweh. Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and he comes to Egypt and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them because the Lord appears riding on a cloud. The Son of Man comes riding on a cloud and the people are perplexed. They know that the end has come and they can do nothing about it because he comes in great power and he comes in great glory. Creation reacts. And notice this, all will see the Son of Man. We should note this is not something spiritual, it is not something private, it is not something that a select few um, witness or see. So when people say, oh, the Lord returned at a certain time, but he returned spiritually and nobody really knows about it. I know Seventh-day Adventists say that, uh, Jehovah Witnesses say that, a number of groups say that. No, when the Lord returns, I want you to understand, it is everybody knows. There is no secret. No secret whatsoever. So, so, so we see uh, unbelievers' reaction to this event. But notice, look at what the believers' reaction is to the same event. Nothing could be starker. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise your head. Your redemption draws near. Wow. These people are fearing. They're perplexed. Not you, believer. You step outside. Stand up. Look up. 
Because everything that you have been desiring from the moment you were born again is now about to happen. Your redemption, your purchase, everything that God has promised you is stand up. You've been bowed down in this particular uh, sermon that Jesus has been preaching. He's saying you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be turned over even by family members and they're going to um, humiliate you. That ain't happening anymore. Stand up. Raise your head. Your redemption draws near. This is a great picture of the return of Christ. So let me just give a quick summary of, of this first section that Jesus talks about. Unbelievers are stricken with fear. They're stricken with perplexity. They don't know what to do. In fact, Revelation gives us a really, really good picture of what mankind does in this day. Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17 tells us this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the power and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? They're saying, I'd rather the mountains fall in on me than see the face of the Lamb of God. You, however, stand up, straighten up, look up, because your redemption draws near. Mankind is hiding in caves and saying, collapse on me. I do not want to look upon his face. You stand up and look up. Because when you see him, you will be like him. That's what the Bible says. This is a great picture of the return of Christ. So then he goes on and, and he, he tells a parable. It's a very simple parable. And it says this, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourself and know the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I'll stop there. So Jesus is now reinforcing his, his message with this parable. And basically, it's real simple. Nature shows for sign. You, you know the change of seasons, right? You, you know when the seasons are coming. And he uses a fig tree. And the Indian says, all the trees. You know when summer is coming. I mean, this year we had such a warm year. I mean, even in February, we were looking at our cottonwoods out here and we're going, man, they're already, you can, you can see the buds on them this early. Summer's coming. I'm no arborist. But I'm like going, seasons are changing. The idea here is be observant. Changes in seasons are recognizable. Once again, when you see these things, what's the believer's reaction? When you see these things, no, no. That's the, that's the be cognizant. Be full of understanding. When you see these things taking place, you do not need to be distressed. You do not need to be perplexed. You do not need to um, faint in fear. You need to know that the kingdom of God is near. This idea of the kingdom of God is a, is, 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 is a very challenging uh, 
issue in Scripture, but it is the central message of Jesus' teaching, so we should probably have a general idea. Um, I'm just going to describe real quick. A kingdom is, is where God rules. And the kingdom began when Jesus showed up. When Jesus came the first time, the kingdom of God, there was the kingdom of God. Why? Because the king was present. But it wasn't completely... The kingdom of God was not consummated. That will come when he comes again. It's like this. You got saved, right? At a certain point in time. If you're a believer, you got saved. But you're still waiting for your, the consummation, of your, the fullness of your salvation, right? There will come a day when you are... The, the complete reality of your salvation is realized. This is similar to the kingdom. The kingdom has come. But the kingdom is still to come. And when Jesus, comes, when Jesus comes again, he will bring with him the kingdom. That is, Christ now will rule over all. All things will be in, subjected, in subjection to the Son of Man, to the Son, to the Lamb of God. They will all now, Revelation, uh, draw from Revelation again. Revelation puts it perfectly in chapter 11, 15. It says this, And the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. So when he comes, know this. The kingdoms of the world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. You're, you're going to see these things start to happen. And you're going, what are you supposed to do? Are you to faint in fear? Are you to tremble? Are you to worry? What are you supposed to do? Know this. The kingdom is coming near. And the kingdoms of the world will now become the kingdoms of our Lord and its Christ. And now we come to this really challenging passage of text. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. So I'll begin there at the end. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. So whatever he's saying, Jesus' words are true. And he says, know this, that truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. So... This, of course, presents a challenge to us. What is meant by this generation shall not pass away till all these things happen because he's talking about his second coming and the generation that he is talking to did pass away. And then Jesus goes on and says, but my words are true. So now liberal scholars will say, well, Jesus was wrong. Um, I don't know. It just seems so strange that Somebody, even with a great IQ, knows more than God. I guess that's the pinnacle of arrogance. But anyways, back to my point. This generation, there's probably six or seven um, ways that this particular passage has been addressed. And I will not go into all of them. I will just simply say... uh, Maybe some of the more common ones and less technical. Some will say this generation, generation should be translated this race. So the Jewish race. And that makes great sense. Um, It it, it helps us a lot. Uh, Unfortunately, the word generation is, Luke never translates it as race. I don't think it's ever translated as race in the Bible, though it is lexically, lexically possible and permissible. It is so rare that I don't think it is really worth um putting in there. Um, it would solve our problem, but I just think it is bad Bible interpretation, so we're not going to uh, we're not going to use that one. 
I think the way we address this is this generation is in context to the parable. Those who see the summertime bloom, those who see the fig leaf bloom, that generation, that generation will not pass away. Those who see the fig leaf bloom, the generation that begins to witness the beginning of the end will actually see the end. The point of this is that when these events begin to happen, it will not take long. It will not be delayed. That I guess when the clock starts, it's going to happen, and it's going to be happened quickly. And I think that will make sense as we move along into, uh, um, in, in this passage. And so um, I think that's our best understanding, that this generation refers to those who are, uh, I, I just call them the summertime generation. And then notice this, the permanence. Heaven and earth will not pass away. Or heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So, believers' response, when you see these things, know this and know this, my words will not pass away. Here's a really fascinating text because Jesus assigns divine authority to his words. My words, my words will not pass away. I don't get to say that. And you don't get to say that. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Those are the types of words God says. In fact, God actually does say it. Imagine that. He says it in a couple of different places, but perhaps the place we should look, and and turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah 40, verse 8. And you know this passage of text probably. So some of you don't even need to turn there, but this will be a a great one. And, And probably when you read those words, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. Many of you probably even thought about Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. Can somebody tell me what Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says? Right. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is what Jesus says. Heaven and earth pass away. The context where... where, um, where Isaiah writes that, where God speaks that through the prophet Isaiah, is is worth taking note. Because he's talking about Babylon has, has taken Israel into captivity. And before Babylon, there was Assyria. So there was Assyria, and they took a bunch of people captive. Then Babylon comes along, and they take a bunch of people captive. Then Babylon gets overthrown, and the Persians take over. See, it's in this context of these power structures. It's in the context of these great kingdoms, these empires that seem so stable that they're going to last forever, that nobody could ever overthrow something as powerful and great and stable as the Babylonian Empire. God says this. They're like grass. They're like flowers. They bloom for a moment, and they look bright and vibrant but they wither and fade away. Here's the thing. My word never fades away. And his word to his people was, I am going to come. You're going to go into captivity, but I promise you this. I'm going to come and get you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you out of captivity. You're going to be there for a while, but I'm going to bring you out. And people would say, look at Babylon. Who could ever overthrow Babylon? And God says, grass. They're grass. 
They're flowers. They fade my words. They abide forever. I said I'm going to come and redeem you. And you see all these power structures, these things that seem like they cannot be defeated. They're grass, they're flowers, they fade away. But my words, my words endure forever. And Jesus says this, the power structures of this world, empires come and empires fade. Structures grow strong and structures fall apart. But my empires rise and fall. Governments come and go. But my words will endure forever. My promises will stand. I think this is so important. Remember the cataclysmic signs, earthquakes and stars falling from the sky. The earth is shaking beneath your... Not even earth can stand. The most solid thing we know is standing on the earth. It fades. It convulses. We think building a house on bedrock is the firmest place you can build it. There's one thing that is more firm than bedrock. The Word of God. The Word of God. See, because that bedrock will fall apart. A little shift of tectonic plates and there it goes. It turns into liquid. My words will not fade away. Grass withers as grass withers, flowers fade. My word stands forever. And this is where Jesus is going. And then he concludes his, his sermon with an admonition, but watch yourselves. The first thing we, sh- we should note is to whom is this addressed? But watch yourself. He's talking to his disciples. So disciples, are you a disciple of the Lord? Watch yourself. Watch yourself about what? Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day comes suddenly upon you like a trap. Watch yourself that you be weighted down with dissipation, this is basically a hangover, and drunkenness and the cares of this life. Weighed down, what a great word, weighed down. So this desire for an altered reality, idolization of the temporal, distract us from focusing on the hope of Jesus appearing. The dog is looking at the door and he's saying, make sure when somebody walks by and says, hey, look over here, you might look for a second and then you say, that's not my master. I will not be distracted by that. Desired for alter idolization of the temporal, distract us from focusing on. Basically, our fervor gets quenched because as time goes on, we get more and more dull to the things, especially to the second coming. And he says, "Careful, because then the day will come upon you suddenly like a trap." That is quickly and unexpected. Here's the thing. If one's attention to spiritual things is dulled by worldly concerns, you will not observe the signs and that day will come suddenly. That's the idea. We get so wrapped up in everything. So that when the, the summertime bloom comes, we don't recognize it. We never saw it. She said, I want you to, then you're not ready. All of a sudden it comes and you weren't ready for it. I'm not saying that you're not saved or anything. I think he's, but he's warning us, don't get weighed down by these things. Let this day come upon you unexpectedly. And I don't think we can miss this place. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Notice this, there are no exemptions. Everybody will experience the coming of Christ. Everybody. 
Nobody gets out of this one without experiencing the, the return of Christ. And then finally, he gives this um, exhortation to be alert. But stay awake. I, I like, but stay awake at all times. Now, he's not saying go without sleep. I think we all kind of got that, right? He's not saying be sleepless. But stay awake at all times. He's not talking about being physically awake at all times. He's saying have this, um, this edge, this uh, alertness in your walk with him. In the midst of pressure, in the midst of the pre- and, and he describes some of the pressure in the previous section. He's, false Christs are going to come. They're going to lead you away to, do, to believe all sorts of weird things. Persecution is going to come. Um, there are going to be signs in heaven. There's going to be cataclysms in the... Be awake. Don't let those things get you distracted. Be sharp in your mind. Be sharp in your spirit. Have the right attitude. Have a sharp attitude toward the things of God. And then notice the means. Praying. Praying. We've been in Luke a long time. Everybody who's been in Luke with us knows Luke loves prayer. He focuses on prayer. So we're not surprised that at the end, he is encouraging his disciples to pray. Here's the other really interesting thing, the way this is. Guess what's about to come in the upcoming chapter? Gethsemane. What happens when Jesus prays in Gethsemane? What do his disciples do? They fall asleep. There's no mistake there. Stay awake. And then he's going to give them a, a living example. Yeah. You know that thing you did in Gethsemane? Don't do that. Stay awake. Pray for strength to escape. This, I, I don't think this has anything to do with actually not experiencing these events. First of all, the Son of Man comes. Everybody's going to experience it. Also, he talked about people being persecuted. But I think the idea here is pray that you may endure these times. And prayer is the key to survival between the advents, between the first coming and the second coming. Prayer is the key between, in, in surviving between the advents. It is the key to not being overwhelmed by the distractions that are going on in this world, by the things that are, are, we're rightfully to be fearful of. Prayer is the thing that enables us to endure. And then finally note this. So much to say here. Praying, but stay awake, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. Notice this, and, connective, to stand before the Son of Man. What a great thing. I want you to be praying. I want you to pray for strength so that you're not carried away by those things, but you, instead you're able to stand. There's that word again. When you see Christ, when you see all these signs, and everybody's perplexed, you go, straighten up, and look up, You've been praying, and now you can stand in the presence of the full measure of God's glorious return. That's what I want you to do. To not shrink, to not crumble. Not in arrogance. Not in like, look at me. But in assurance. You've offered your redemption. I have accepted your your terms. You are my God and I am your child and I can stand in your presence.
not on any merits of my own, on the merits of Christ. The, uh, the passage of text that you just can't escape is the doxology in Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He will make you stand in his presence, note, with great joy. So in prayer, so that you escape those things over there, you endure them, and then on the day of his arrival, you are in his presence without shame, but with great joy. This is the return of Christ. So, just a quick summary and then I'll conclude. The pressures of this world can dull our senses. But by prayer, we will not succumb. And by prayer, we will be certain to obtain a, a favorable verdict. I think that's the idea. That a certain favorable verdict awaits those who um, tune themselves with prayer and not succumb to the altered realities and the idolization that this world so magnifies. I'm going to close with this, and it's a, I have a few little points there in my conclusion, but I'm going to close with just a little story. As a pastor, I read a sermon from a pastor in Flagstaff, and he gave this illustration, and I think it's perfect. When he was a kid, he worked at a, a very, very ritzy hotel up in Chicago, and um, I think it was on one of the lakes there, on the lake, and this was in the 50s. And there came a time where Queen Elizabeth was visiting. Um, they were going to come and visit. And the town goes crazy. You know, they're, they're painting the docks and they're painting trash cans. They're sprucing up the town, making it look really, really nice. And, you know, everybody's fervently working to make sure everything's polished and great. Hotels were cleaning everything and making themselves. And one of the, uh, the newspaper reporters asked the, the manager of this very ritzy hotel where this pastor was working and says, are you preparing for the arrival of the queen? To which the manager replied, our hotel is always ready to receive royalty. I just thought, what a great illustration. Our hotel is always ready to receive royalty. Folks, that's where we are. That's who we are to be. We are to the people who are always, we, we don't spruce up, we're always ready to receive royalty. So whether that day lingers or whether that day's today, it doesn't matter because we're always ready to receive royalty and Jesus is the King and the Lord and for that we are grateful. Let's stand and uh, let's pray.